Hello and welcome to the Open Labour podcast. My name is James Gibson and I'm joined as always by my co-host Tom Hinchcliffe. Hi Tom, how are you? Hello, yes I'm alright James, how are you? <laughs> Very well, thank you. Um, so we're recording today on, on the 31st of December 2020. But the interview with our special guest was recorded earlier in December. I mentioned the date because I thought it was significant that we have recorded this podcast on the last day of what has been for billions of people across the world, one of the worst years in living memory. It really does speak volumes that just yesterday, uh, the 30th of December, which is usually very quiet in, in terms of politics, certainly in the Commons anyway, saw Britain leave the EU with an awful deal and an announcement that millions more people will be put into tier four lockdown restrictions. I mean, we could talk at length uh, about this year, couldn't we, Tom? And, and, and one of the aims of, of the podcast, though, for this year at least, has been to give people alternative news yeah. away from the global pandemic. Though, I suppose we did, we did cover it in one one episode, the global pandemic. I mean, we can't not really. Uh, it, it, it is the biggest political uh, issue of our time. You, you know, eclipsing Brexit, which is crazy to think when you think back to mm. 2019. So, with all that in mind, and with your usual positive aura surrounding you, Tom, <laughs> what, what do you want to say about this year? Uh, yes, positive aura on. Um, <laughs> No, I just, yeah, I think you're right. The, the the pandemic is obviously the elephant in the room when you're doing anything like this. And, yeah. You know, we don't want to be too self-reflecting, but we have tried to steer away from it as much as possible, but it does just cross yeah. over everybody's briefs. So we've, you know, we've had, we've had so many different experts on about the Green New Deal, about universities and things like that, and it, it crosses over everything. It mm. is all-encompassing, which is scary, but... I mean, there's no escaping that this year has been horrendous. It certainly, it's the worst of my 25 years, I think. Mm. But with a disaster like a pandemic, thinking about positive auras, there's, there's always victories. And I think yeah. we've delivered a vaccine within a year since coronavirus was identified in, in Wuhan and sequenced in Oxford. I think we've identified a couple of treatments like dexamethasone, yeah. the cheap steroid, which has saved countless lives, you know. And despite that utter failures you know of this government science has won the day in the end and i think it's really set us up to be positive about 2021 and let's face it 2021 can't really be much worse than right i'm uh, touching wood as you're saying that um yeah (laughs) yeah but uh yeah don't be careful what you wish for but what helps me a lot is i saw it on twitter um in april right at the start of all this a journalist tweeted it and he said that every night when you're going to sleep just think about you're one day closer to this this whole thing, this pandemic being over. And I think it's really simple, but it is a really helpful way to kind of jot down the days until we can return to some sort of normality. And just on a personal note, I think this year we we started this podcast, you know, and born out of lockdown, you know, boredom and, you know, something to do half the time. But we, everyone that's listened to us would just like to say thanks, to be honest, because all, and and to all of our guests, because we've had front benches, like we had Emma Hardy, the Shadow Universities Minister, and we've had some real stalwarts of the movement. And Black's been on twice. Uh, yeah. Alice Perry's been on twice. And Jermaine Jackman, people like that. And we're really, really grateful to them and to Open Labour for letting us do this. And to, obviously, the people that are listening uh, to our ramblings now. 
That's lovely, Tom. Yeah, thank you, listeners. You know, it's um, it, it's been a two-way thing, hasn't it? In the sense yeah. that, you know, hopefully we've given people something to to do and and something to take their minds off the pandemic. Albeit, as you've said, we do mention it from from time to time in the podcast. But as well as that, it really has helped us, hasn't it, get over this or cope with the pandemic by giving us something extra and fun to focus on. So, yeah, thank you, everybody who's listening out there. So, today's podcast then. Well, it's an interview with Dr. Harry Pitts and Professor Paul Thompson, who co-wrote the recent Open Labour Foreign Policy pamphlet. I think it's fair to comment that the pamphlet has not been without its criticism, but the first thing to say is, is the pamphlet is not Open Labour Policy. Okay. The pamphlet was published by Open Labour with the intention of stimulating debate around foreign policy. Tom, you and I, we have different views on this pamphlet and perhaps that comes across in the interview. I'm not sure, perhaps it doesn't. (laughs) (laughs) My personal view is that there there is some good stuff in the pamphlet. In particular, I found the the introduction, the foreword by Alex Sobel and Professor Mary Calder, particularly engaging uh, and perhaps, you know, that you know, it's something that's my sort of politics. Um, whereas the body of the pamphlet is, you know, very interesting, but there are some views in there that, that, that aren't my own. But what, what do you think? Yeah, I, I, I don't agree with anything the pamphlet says. I don't think anyone will. I don't, you know, foreign policy, of all things, has always been a really contentious issue in the Labour Party. Mm, and, and, and But, you know, I think... Overall, I think the pamphlet does point in the right direction that most members will agree with, you know, a direction where a, a consistent approach to foreign policy based on human rights, the protection of activists, international law, all that comes first. I think sure. that's absolutely what Labour should be prioritising. I'm, I'm confident from what she said at the, uh, the launch of the pamphlet and what she's done so far as Shadow Foreign Secretary that Lisa Nandy is the right person to lead on that mm. uh, consistent approach. I won't say too much because we've got the interview coming up, but yeah. I really do think there's some valuable stuff in there and we can all look and really debate it within our movement. One thing I would say is that this is about everyone's views and mm. we all agree on 99% of this stuff, even foreign yeah. policy, and that's what Open Labour is about, uh, you know, highlighting the agreement between you know, the, the socialists and the social democrats in the party. It's It's, it's great to have such a broad commitment to human rights and a just internationalist society on all sides of, of what is a broad church, including on this podcast between me and you. Absolutely. So the, 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 these are yeah, true labour values, bread and butter labour values, as, as I've heard some people put it before, and, and won't be left behind regardless of the faction that leads the party at any one time. So There's stuff in there that we can all agree on, absolutely. absolutely. But look, I think there's something that we can definitely agree on is that in open labour, we welcome different views and we welcome, welcome, I'm stumbling on my words a little bit there, welcome earnest and productive debate. That's something that we can definitely agree on. And hopefully everybody that's listening to this podcast or is involved in, in open labour or you know takes an interest in the Labour Party can agree on on that on that principle it's certainly what we try and represent in open Labour isn't it Tom yeah absolutely cool let's jump to it then and we're joined now by Paul and Harry hi Paul hi Harry how are you doing good thanks all right thanks 
Good, good. It's really great uh, for you to join us. We're really pleased to have you on. We're going to jump straight to it. We know that everybody's pressed for time. I'll just start off by saying, so I was really busy, so I missed the launch to this pamphlet, but it, it sort of put me in this different position, a different perspective, because on social media, you'll know, we're all sort of in this bubble where there's people that are that are interested in politics. And after the launch of, of the pamphlet, I was conscious of a sort of narrative emerging from some parts of, of that social media bubble. And the narrative really was a, a prosaic criticism of the pamphlet's call for liberal intervention. And essentially what, you know, the criticism was that liberal, uh, liberal intervention equates to a shift back to the approach taken to foreign policy by New Labour, and we all know where that ended up. So just after reading the introduction, it became clear that this wasn't the case at all, and the discussion in the pamphlet was much more nuanced and progressive. So it, it seems clear to me that people criticising the pamphlet hadn't even give it, given it a, a cursory read. So let's deal with this head on. Let's break it down into two sections to begin with. What was the motivation for writing the leaflet? And then let's move on to some general discussion about it. Okay, if I could just kick off, um, you know, one of the, the, the criticisms that, that we had from uh, otherwise sympathetic comment from George Morris was that, um, you know, we, we were kind of rehashing old debates. Um, in the critique of Corbynism and what we call anti-imperialist perspectives on foreign policy. But this goes back to the motivation because the pamphlet's genesis was that I was approached, not this autumn, but the previous autumn by Labour Together to write a kind of briefing on what was wrong with foreign policy perspectives under Corbyn. Okay. Which I did and then got Harry involved because Harry had written this longer critique of Corbynism in his, his, his book and so on. Sure. And of course, by the time that we crafted this, uh, the general election was on us. And clearly everything kind of disappeared. And then by the time it re-emerged, there was a lot of kind of sensitivity around the issues. And it, it, it all got, the pamphlet kind of got buried until we, we, we took it to open labor. And, and even then it took six months to, uh, you know, to emerge. So people have got to understand that the original motivation of the pamphlet was to kind of shift the existing thinking 15, 18 months ago, mm. um, not in the context of, in a sense, the current leadership or the previous leadership. Um, and our starting point, and it's in the first page of the pamphlet, was yeah. kind of twofold. One was, to note the fact that compared to the innovative thinking on economic and industrial policy that had gone on the McDonald, 
that we had completely stood still, if not gone backwards mm. on foreign policy. It was just nothing, one great big nothing, which in itself was a problem. Mm. Um, and that secondly, you know, a lot of the kind of micro politics of our responses to foreign policy were frankly embarrassing, um, ranging from the unwillingness of Corbyn and his uh, his advisors to criticise Russia for the chemical attacks on British soil, to the unwillingness to comment or intervene around other human rights issues, some of them in in regimes that the hard left were kind of sympathetic to in Venezuela, for example. So, so what we tried to do in the, in, in the pamphlet, and I'm not going to kind of go massively overboard on it, because mm-hmm. these are up for explore, exploration in, in, in our chat was to, um, you know, was to kind of critique the underpinning ideology which was had led to the stagnation, uh, which, borrowing from Harry's wider book about Corbynism, was, in our view, this kind of two-campism, where everything's divided up between the West and the rest. Everything that the West, well, the West is seen as basically the only actor with motives and interests. Everything else is reactive. Uh, to it um and uh and that this was kind of on underpinning the unwillingness to look at any other actors and interests whether it was russia china saudi arabia turkey iran whatever so so on the one hand we wanted to critique that that kind of uh, ideology but we also wanted to um, you know, without pretending we were foreign policy experts, to try to map out some of the changing contours and characteristics of the global polity in terms of a much more multi-polar uh, um, world in, in which you had a lot of competing state actors and interests which could not be reduced to the the old formula of everything had to do with american hegemony and uh, you know military and economic power but as you said and i'll leave it at this this point because i've gone on long enough um the pamphlet is very clear from the start um, that this was not a call to a return to blurism and liberal interventionism and so on. And there was a very clear early uh, critique of um, the Iraq war intervention mm-hmm. and, and we use the term military misadventures in, in, in the Middle East, yeah. which, as you say, seems to have been mildly overlooked uh, <laughs> in a fair bit of, of the com- of the comments uh, on that. So I'll, I'll leave that as an opening shot. Do you think, you, you, you start the report with the, the quote from Joe Cox, and it, it says on, on Syria, on Europe, on Ukraine, this government has been on the periphery, all victim of the same lack 
of long-term strategic thinking about British foreign policy in the absence of a moral compass, and that this flawed approach has not only damaged our ability to have an impact, but also limits our capacity to be a force for good. Obviously, that's got a lot of uh, connotations with uh, Robin Cook's ethical foreign policy. Would, would you both say that this kind of, you know, there were several turning points in Corbyn's leadership. I think we'll come on to this a bit later on, but there were several moments that I think acted as watersheds. You know, the, the failure to react robustly enough and proactively enough to the Salisbury poisoning, for example, and things like that. Do you think that, as James said, some aspects of the report have been willfully misread in that, you know, your, your thinking has been more influenced by what Joe Cox said and what Robin Cook said rather than, rather than a return to, you know, Blairism and, and interventionism? I think the election of Biden kind of, you know, reconfigured some of what we wrote. Um, prior to that, the first iteration of the, of the pamphlet uh, focused on Trump's presidency and the kind of, the, I guess, the danger of that and the way that the US was, you know, swinging between throwing its weight around on the world stage in a completely, you know, destructive and, and you know, often, uh, um, uh, you know, kind of a belligerent manner um, specifically with kind of global institutions, whilst simultaneously stepping aside from some of the kind of responsibilities, I guess, that the US can um, can engage with in terms of creating a safer, more peaceful world, um, protecting human rights, etc. Um, so the kind of a lot of that has become, uh, you know, read into our pamphlet has become this idea that we're calling for a restoration of the kind of Blair Bush years um of kind of yeah liberal interventionism you know whereas we have our own uh, you know within the labor party joe cox and robin cook are two you know separated by years but were articulating an ethical foreign policy that is different to that um but still calls for more engagement with the world uh, you know more in, more engagement with with allies and you know a closer interest in international affairs than had so far been taken not only by um by Corbyn and the movement around him, who of course profess strong internationalist principles, and in some cases that you know there are there are committed internationalists among that kind of part of the party that that that, that you know don't necessarily reduce to the the way we've characterised um, anti-imperialism, for instance. Um, but you know, ultimately that internationalism has been undermined by um, some stances on, let's say, Syria, for instance. Um, as exposed by the recent BBC Radio 4 May Day documentary, mm -hmm. that you know we necess don't necessarily tally with the type of values we might um, aspire to on the left. But it's not only that we begin the, the the pamphlet by saying it's not only a problem there on among Corbynists, but also on the right of politics as well. I mean, Boris Johnson symbolises this, and we, we identify the fact that you know he's Prime Minister after a disastrous reign as Foreign Secretary, where he inhabited a lot of this distanced and you know kind of almost isolationist um and unethical thinking however you know we're writing the pamphlet about new directions for the left so we're focused critically on uh you know looking at the current weaknesses in the way that left thinking about foreign policy is is configured um and and how that could be uh kind of resolved in different ways through that um and you know and basically appreciating there are many more different 
standpoints within what we can broadly call the left on how we should approach the world and foreign policy and you know we we speak in detail about a few specific instances within that you know syria also the rise of of russia and china and um, we don't deal with every conflict in the world um in in detail um but you know showing that there are there are different ways to approach this on a different kind of i guess moral and ethical compass about what we should be looking at as socialists or as social democrats than were on offer until recently um in the labor party and also recognizing that frankly lisa nandy's um you know um installment uh, 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 on the foreign affairs brief for the Labour Party has marked a, a substantial step forward in terms of um, recalibrating um, how we orient ourselves towards the rest of the world. So yeah. being a, a little bit more specific then, I, I mean, I think that's a, a good introduction and a, a good overview. Um, what jumped out at me from, from reading the pamphlet was this idea of to give a concrete example to listeners was this idea of sort of emergency services. So this, you know, it's similar to the emergency services that we have um, at, at home. Um, obviously that's the police and, uh, and health services and perhaps social services as well fall into that and fire services. Um, but a, a similar sort of approach to follow foreign policy that sort of mirrors that and, and emergency services to be able to, to um, support people to pursue their their um, freedoms and rights as as well as responsibilities on on people in power you know I, I that idea of emergency services which mary and alex articulate in the introduction is a good one and in a way illustrates i guess to some extent we've been characterized as calling for kind of uh, endless war by bombing campaigns um all over the world and specifically in the middle east when what we're talking about is much where we are talking about military action, which is by no means the extent of how we're viewing foreign policy in the pamphlet, that emergency services idea, um, whilst not replicating the kind of over assertive role of the US as global policeman that we, we saw kind of unravel disastrously um, with the Iraq conflict. Um, yeah, we are talking about responses to emerging situations where human life is at threat. And to the extent you know, we criticise two campism in its kind of anti-imperialist variant of, um, you know, basically having a greater amount of sympathy with countries like Russia and China than with, um, say, the US or the or the UK, or at least seeing them as a viable kind of alternative pole. We've been accused of being two campist um, in return by advocating, you know, the US and the UK and and European allies as a counterweight to that, but. It's more about recognizing that in those situations, you know, we have we have global partnerships and institutions that are capable of doing something to stop that happening in situations. I mean, we can talk about the correct mode of intervention in a conflict like Syria in order to protect mm. human lives through something like a no fly zone. But in 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 coordination and in alliance with um, our partners and here you can't really do without the US. Um, in that especially under a kind of sensible you know democratically committed um leadership um it's about recognizing the potential that we have to act in the world to stop something happening and i mean joe cox authored this report um which was finished off i think by tom tugan and um alison mcgovern after after a death yeah. um the cost of doing nothing 
Um, now, we aren't necessarily that saying that it's always necessary to do something, even where that can create a worse reality. But too often, the attitude um, has been on the left with foreign conflicts that it, you know that doing nothing is a is a viable uh, route to take. So, would you say that it's it's this this pamphlet is more focused on you know the the responsibility to prevent rather than the responsibility to protect and you know critics of responsibility to prevent and taking a more internationalist not interventionist but progressive uh view of the world based on human rights and international law they say that the responsibility to prevent always leads to the responsibility to protect and interventionism so do you think do you think it's clear enough that foreign policy isn't just about fighting wars it, it's it's about a labor value that Peace and stability has to be the main aim of an internationalist government, and you know diplomatic yeah. services and things like that. Potentially have in, uh, power than the, the military force. Yeah, I, it's a good way of putting it. Some of the responses to the pamphlet indicate the kind of time warp we're stuck in, where the word intervention, by definition is linked to military intervention. Mm. I read immediately one comment which said that, you know, the prime focus of the pamphlet was about military intervention. There's probably a few paragraphs here and there that actually talk about military intervention um, throughout the, the, the pamphlet. There's much more of an argument, an attempt to do an argument around the need for engagement and intervention on a variety of of of, of forms and in a sense it, it, it's this weird inversion that in a way it's the hard left who are obsessed by military intervention because that's all they can they can conceptualize uh, governments our own government and other say european governments or any government doing. There was a very telling um, bit in the last paragraph of the Stop the War Coalition critique of, of our pamphlet when uh, the author, Steve Bell, and we, we don't think it's the cartoonist, but who knows, um, is says um, that the starting point of the pamphlet should have been uh, the defence review initiated by Labour after the 1997 victory, in which, and they, they quote this bit, bit, bit which said something like um, that uh, the, 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 the possibility for, um, for, for Britain to be invaded or to have military action against it is 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 very small um and and so on and, and the point is that may that may be true um and that may be a good basis for having a different strategy towards what we spend our, our military budget on but that's not the be-all and end-all of foreign policy. 
mm. um, what you do, you know, with 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 your military, and um, you know, ninety nine percent of all the things that democratic nations do with respect to foreign policy is concerned with soft power. Yeah, we know that. Right now, that soft power, of course, can be used to do stupid uh, reactionary things. But of course, you know, the whole point of trying to re-energize the, the Cook Cox doctrines around this was, was to develop a conversation around humanitarian and human rights led and responsibility to, to protect interventions. Um, and I mean, and we can, I'm sure we can get onto this, but our, our purpose, in any purpose with discussing military intervention was simply to argue against shutting down that possibility under any circumstances. Mm. That was all. It, mm. it certainly wasn't. You, you will not find any argument in that pamphlet which says that uh, the next step of the Labour government, you know, should be to uh, start invading X, Y, or Z, or to send military task forces to, 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 to anywhere. And, you know, but we do recognise that defending, the, if you like, the theoretical possibility of military intervention is a hot potato. Maybe we can get onto that. But, you know, yeah. uh, it's, it was, as you say, much more about, the full panoply of issues about intervention. I think, yeah, I think there's two things there. I think some people, especially on the hard left, but also on the on the hard right, sometimes as well, have selectively, willfully, you know, cast interventionism as a dirty word. Whereas, you know, we, I don't think we should cower from the successes of interventionism abroad, where in places like Sierra Leone, and Kosovo, and Bosnia, yeah. and things like that, where you know, yeah. this week was the 25th anniversary of the Dayton Agreement that ended the Bosnian war. And we, we played a huge role in that. And, and NATO, uncountably, and I know people won't like this, but NATO, I don't know why, because NATO saved countless lives by, by intervening and, and, and really forcing the Serbs back into negotiations there. Obviously, we won't go into the whole content of it. But do you think, you know, that it's been, as I say, it's been selectively pushed by the, some, some, not all, on the hard left to cast anything that might not rule out action abroad as dirty military interventionism like Iraq. Well, yeah. I mean, if I could just make one comment and then I can come in. Yeah. Uh, it, it was telling uh, sometime during the previous years, Harry's probably got a better memory for it than this. I'm trying to put him on the spot. But when, um, when, when Corbyn and... Um, one of his, his other co-thinkers were, um, were, were asked to come up with um, any situation in which they would justify the use of military force. The only example they could come up with was the Second World War. Wow. That, that really indicates the, the, in a sense, an attempt to, to create this kind of complete exceptionalism around, around those um, events. Mm. And, and therefore, you know, 
what they tend to do, and again, you can read this in the Stop the War critique of, of the pamphlet, is that every foreign conflict is refracted through the same lens. Mm. So they simply move from Iraq to Libya to Syria to, you know, as if it's the same playbook and the same players every single time. Now, of course, you know, one can go through these things and it's not a great record of intervention. Let, let's be absolutely blunt uh, uh, about this. I mean, even setting aside Iraq, which everyone admits was a complete um, disaster. Yeah. Uh, but as you said, um, you know, Kosovo and Sierra Leone can't be, ref you know, put through the, the, the same playbook. So mm. I'm sure Harry wants to add something to that, but I'm really agreeing with your, your point there. Yeah, I mean, the Iraq thing, um, I mean, it's not just a thing, obviously, it's a historic disaster that caused the death of, of you know, a million people. Um, you know, it's used in the debate now about intervention about you know different forms of i guess projecting soft and hard power on, on the world stage as i would say kind of a bit of a convenient alibi for some parts of the left and and of the right i mean you think about your your peter hitchens and your um um you know um what's his name peter osborne's of this world um yeah oborn sorry peter oborn yeah, peter oborn um who's a you know big the left are big fans of uh, these guys now right um <laughs> You know, it's a it's a it's a convenient alibi because what it does is the example is projected forwards onto every conflict that follows, so that the West can't really act without it being a regime change project. And you know, the the Syria thing is a, I mean, it's a completely different um, situation where where military action has been on the table or, or you know, temporarily um, uh, enforced. It's been you know preventative measures about you know, chemical weapons attacks or protection of humans from harm. Um, uh, but that hasn't really stopped, you know, the spread of conspiracy theories that suggest it's really about regime change. Um, you know, Islamophobic conspiracy theories, basically about kind of the white helmets and these, you know, networks of jihadists and things like that, as we, as we saw in the recent BBC Radio 4 um, documentary. Now, you know, it doesn't, it, it, the completely different kind of situations but everything is forced into the same template because i guess it it's an alibi for the left from their own their own weaknesses and their own inefficiencies in this conflict not all of the left of course but you know within the left it's incubated you know conspiracy theory or even support for um assad or putin's intervention the point is that interventions are already happening around the world the fact that, you know, we talk about intervention or non-intervention. I mean, non-intervention itself is a kind of intervention in the world because by opting out also has an effect, doesn't it? But those interventions are already happening in a place like Syria, whether it's Russia or Iran or Turkey, you know, with different interests, different um, allies and different enemies in the, in the context. The question is, you know, is post-liberal intervention or authoritarian and authoritarian uh, interventionism, you know, <laughs> we're being accused of being liberal interventionists, but there's a, there's a whole different kind of interventionism taking place in the world right now. And that's at the hands of regimes that uh, don't even have any adherence to, uh, to basic tenets of liberal democracy or human rights. Mm. Now, I'll just make a, a, a final point on that in terms of intervention. One of the kind of, I guess, I thought the, one of the 
the best the, the most well-made criticisms of of the pamphlet that i've seen was on navara media from david waring who you know is a foreign policy uh, expert um uh, about the uh the conflict in yemen right which is a you know the, the world's worst humanitarian catastrophe is is again it's completely different to what's happening in syria but you know some of the same elements are in the, the things that make it so bad are different uh than in mm -hmm. syria but you're still talking about bombing campaigns that transgress all kinds of norms um and about the kind of he was writing about the kind of interventions that britain can make in this and that principally concerns stop selling arms to saudi arabia um as a way of, of 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 and that's an intervention and i mean what he argues is is absolutely fine and i mean part of the point is that he, he considers that we've neglected the yemen situation in in um in the pamphlet but that goes to show that it's not just about military intervention that can that can get an effect and, and lisa nandy's committed like next labor government to not selling arms to saudi arabia um and you know i, I think broadly I would, I would agree with that i mean the, the point is though that the way that he articulates his argument about what intervention should mean and the stop the war coalition make a similar point in their in their criticism is that we can we should only do what is in our powers within britain to to stop and to prevent mm. and whilst i recognize the kind of the realism of that in the sense that there's certain things we can do within britain to say stop selling arms to saudi arabia we should only concentrate on conflicts that britain is implicated in you know if you stop the war coalition that's a strangely kind of nationally confined vision of it's, it's how we engage with the world for the left to be advocated yeah, it's, it's um, I, I agree with some parts of it but i think it's you can't stop there i mean it might be it might be framed as realist certainly but i think <laughs> To be honest, isn't it on the surface? It's inaction. It's it's uh, isolationist. The type of isolationism that departs from you know our, our responsibilities to our international partnerships. So uh, the UN, NATO, the EU to an extent, um, um, pre Brexit, of course. You know, do, do you think that that framing framing it through the through framing every intervention, military or not, through that spectacle of iraq and putting pushing it all same through the template through the same template do you think that you know undermines our commitment to to our moral obligations to people abroad the poorest people abroad well un undoubtedly i mean we um and you know you can't really escape the fact that a lot of the evasiveness about britain linking up with partners in other democratic nations um, to make humanitarian inter interventions is underpinned by a kind of instinctive hostility to bodies like NATO. Mm. Mm. And yet we are committed to working with, with, with partners in NATO. I mean, and look, nobody would say you know, NATO, NATO has some kind of unblemished, you know, history of always doing uh, the, the right thing. Um, but, you know, you can learn a lot by the silences mm. of the hard left and, as you say, sometimes the hard right on, on how you build alliances um, through... Um, global institutions and, and we we do make quite a strong point in 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 the pamphlet um about the threat of 
right-wing authoritarian populism to the global liberal democratic order. And we are completely unapologetic about, about that. You know, that order has limitations in terms of what it is doing with climate change, with what it's doing with global in inequalities. But it is a necessary underpinning to wanting to do th better things. And again, the hard left really, you know, is, is ambivalent at best and hostile to worst, at worst, to the idea of liberal democratic institutions. It sees them as part of some kind of bourgeois neoliberal order, um, which means that frequently their conceptions are very isolationist in terms of what they're prepared yeah. to talk about Britain doing um, as, a, as an actor on the world stage. Do you think the Biden administration has an opportunity to change that? I mean, you talk about neoliberalism and, and you know, um, hard right populist populist governments and how they can change the status quo. Do you think with Trump being booted out of the, the White House and the US have basically, the Biden administration is committed to re-signing the uh, Iran nuclear deal, the JCPOA, and to New START and to the Paris climate agreements. Do you, do you think that is an opportunity to kind of flip that? So it's an unprecedented time to kind of have a chance at overturning this this populist kind of wave that seems to have gripped parts of um, Eastern Europe and South America and the Americas? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it marks a change. Uh, you know, I think maybe, you know, you, you might read our pamphlet as over-enthusiastic to some extent about some of the changes that are possible. But, and this comes back to that two-campism point. I mean, two-campism... Uh, you know, you could say, oh, we're being too campus because we're saying that the, you know, the US or whatever can can lead a kind of more just world and that there's no hope for the other camp to do it. But I, I would describe my own position as something like two and a half campus in the sense that you can't really, you, if you're interested in a kind of fair, a just, peaceful world, you can't really imagine that without the US being part of it. And it's why Trump's presence in the White House was so destructive. Mm. The US has acted on the world stage in ways that are ugly and, and, and exploitative um, in the past, uh, you know, with, with violent con uh, you know, um, consequences, undemocratic consequences the world over. But the point is that Britain, as, an, you know, as a small island that still punches above its weight to some extent, um, you can't really do without that kind of system of institutions that has been constituted across the Atlantic um, since World War II. But that also requires us to be, um, you know, to keep close relationships with our European partners after Brexit as well. It's not, the US isn't the only game in town and the US takes our voice seriously and hopefully under a Labour government more seriously if that's amplified in concert with our, um, with our European partners. So I think the US is, is, is pivotal to, to, you know, to, to restoring a rights-based, you know, rule of law and uh, institutional order, um, because as soon as they step out of the picture, confidence in that declines, and the capacity of it to actually act to redress wrongs around the world is severely diminished. However, you know, we we also need to recognise that at different times, Europe's going to give us a stability that the US can't. Um, if another Trump 
comes into the White House, for instance, if we've spent four or five years cozying up to Biden and then suddenly um, we need to switch back to Europe, then if we, if we haven't if we haven't kept those alliances warm um, across the channel, then then that's going to be leave Britain in a in a severely diminished position. So just to bring it back to sort of uh, contemporary context then and, and a practical context as well what what do you think between you is the or should be the immediate foreign policy concern for the british government at the moment look obviously we're at a very difficult point aren't we in terms of political landscape where it only just got to the end of the first year of a of of a Tory administration with a significant majority um, and in a period in which we're just about to finally leave the EU. So our, our leverage in, in, in a sense, we, we, it's pretty limited. Um, but two things, and maybe Harry could pick up the, the second one that, that I think are important. I mean, one is to take more, um, be more assertive about Hong Kong. Um, this is obviously in, in part a reflection of the deal that, that we made with, with China, which they've clearly uh, broken. Uh, and our obligations to people with these curious British overseas um, passports. And I mean, to be fair to the current government, um, they have made commitments uh, there and the current indications are that um, that uh, they may have underestimated the, 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 the number of uh, potential people who might want to resettle in Britain. But I think Labour could do a a service to the people of Hong Kong by pressing harder on this um, by taking out stronger sanctions um, against the uh, puppets of China in uh, in Hong Kong um, and moving quicker on on the resettlement and I say that partly because like i said of the our historical legacies and what we owe this but it is part of the more general picture and we talk about this quite a lot in 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 the pamphlet it is part of the kind of two campism um thing um i this means quite a lot to me because i've got a lot of friends in hong kong and i was in china at the time well i was in beijing at the time of the Tiananmen square massacre and i have never had any or not in recent years any illusions in the nature of the chinese regime and again you know there are sections of the hard left that are relatively silent or evasive on on chinese uh, power and, and authoritarianism um so you know, I think it will be sending a great message, both practically and politically. Um, the other area, but I'll leave it to Harry to, to pick up, um, is, is Yemen. Um, because like him, I 
was very sympathetic to the critique um, that David Wearing made in Novara Media of uh, what we said, or to be honest, really what we didn't say about about Yemen. Um, and I think we should push hard on that. And, and I pretty much agree with the practical politics of, of what he said. I don't know whether Harry wants to pick that up any further. Well, I think, um, you know, I guess our point in the in the pamphlet about Yemen was was not to engage um, in kind of what aboutery, I guess, with 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 the, with the, the Saudi um, intervention there, which is you know un undoubtedly precipitated uh, the humanitarian crisis, you know, among displaced people and people who have been bombed in their homes, etc. There's also a you know an Iranian in, in, you know Iranian stake in that conflict as well, and I think one of the kind of that ties into a wider issue, I think, about the renegotiation of the um, of the JCPOA um, mm. under Biden, which you know the signs are, are, are positive around that in terms of the sounds that are coming from the Iranian regime. Um, there have been suggestions that you know in the dying days of the Trump presidency, there's an attempt to kind of I guess put a bit of a spoiler on on that. I think the the, the changed scenario in the Middle East in terms of Iranian, I guess, assertiveness through militias in, in Syria shoring up the Assad regime um, through other kind of proxies um, in, in the region is that since that was signed, you know, I guess partly under the shadow of the deal, but then also, you know, the, the fact it's collapsed has precipitated this uh, on a wider scale is Iran's expanded role within the region and the kind of flare ups we've seen with the US um, uh, recently um as well and whether that can kind of be put back in its box enough to for, to have that that nuclear deal um re-engaged because a nuclear iran you know is not something that we should be uh cavalier about seeing on the world stage you know specifically not for for israel um uh, or, or other actors in the region as well so i you know i think obviously we need to see a solution to the yemen conflict and that's going to require that's going to require um, the capacity to be able to negotiate also with Iran around that. So I, um, whilst I think the Brit is correct, what what the what the critique of us in the Vara Media said that is up, you know, Britain has a big role to play and the US as well in uh, in stopping that Saudi bombing. Um, there is another side to it as well, um, and and that's also part of a wider kind of response within the region about uh, um, uh, to to Iran and trying to just get everything on a much more sustainable and sensible footing, not only around the nuclear deal but also around you know wider conflicts in the region and the kind of proxy wars that are, are enveloping um, countries that you know by no means need that becoming a, a part of uh, already um, existing uh, conflicts. Mm, yeah, I think I think I think that's right, and I think you know I know Lisa and Andy's focusing in immediately on with her shadow foreign office team as working together as you know an international community to kind of fairly distribute the vaccine for the for COVID nineteen. I think that's probably the most short term immediate goal that that kind of Labour are looking at. But you know we're about to see probably over the next few months, and it's probably already started, especially from China in the Caribbean and. Central and South America, some sort of kind of vaccine diplomacy. Do you think the left will be, especially, well, I suppose, the Labour Party in Parliament? Do you think? Do you think there's with a Tory 
80 seat majority do you think there's anything you know the parliamentary party could be doing better to to further you know britain's soft power on this because obviously we we do have one of the main vaccines that looks like it's going to be approved do you think there's a part for us to play there i think undoubtedly um as you say you know i mean i've been hugely encouraged by what Lisa and the new foreign shadow foreign policy team have, have have been saying, but you know one has to distinguish between, in a sense, the kind of the mood music that because you know a foreign policy brief, you're constantly being asked to 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 give a position on often on things which you have very little leverage with respect to so so on the other hand you're constantly on the radio or the telly going we think x and we think y um and and i we know from lisa's involvement in the launch of the of, of the open labor pamphlet that she's very much on board with the the you know the the broader the, the broader approach and it will be much better balanced than the previous leadership and she is universally pretty much saying the right things which are consistent in a kind of Robin Cook type type politics, if you like. But then there's the issue about, you know, where do you try and actually campaign? Where's the leverage? And and you're quite right, um, you know, uh, the, the, the vaccine um, deployment is, is, is going to be fairly um, central to that. To be fair, we don't really know how the politics of that is going to play out yet in terms of the UK government. They may take a, a reasonably progressive line for all, for, you know, for, for all we know um, at the moment, but there's certainly the opportunities there to, um, to build, uh, to use soft power, particularly again with, with, with Biden. In, I mean, we know that if Trump had won, it would have been, you know, vaccine hoarding, a go-go um, in, in, in there. So, again, it, you know, without any fantastic illusions in the Biden presidency, they're clearly going to have their hands full on a domestic basis. There, there will be the possibility. Um, but it was the reason that I did mention the Hong Kong and China thing, because I think yeah. um, that that is where where there is an opportunity to to use leverage to push the UK government a bit further than it is going at the moment. If I could just, I mean, also, I think the the situation in Xinjiang with the um, Uyghur Muslims as well. I mean, you know, I think, you know, Labour have been very good on this and have outpaced the Tories in their in their in their response. Not that it's a competition. Um, what we're seeing there are, are the beginnings of something historic and, and you know, already, uh, you know, identified by some observers as genocide or in that kind of in that bracket. And, the, you know, the idea that this is going to test, I think, those kind of standard, you know, in, increasingly kind of normalized relationships with with China, you know, Chinese business. And we've seen this week all this all the stuff about um, fashion supply chains and 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 the fact that, you know, this is increasingly going to be a kind of foreign policy waged through business, um, you know, through tech, uh, you know, big tech and things like that, that is, you know, some people describe it as a cold war, but it's going to look a lot different to 
any Cold War we've seen previously in the kind of range of actors that it brings into that and, and the kind of, I guess, some of the conflicts and compromises is going to demand of the British state in, in how they coordinate that with the private sector, um, public sector, um, you know, even the university system, for instance. Um, I think that's quite complex and it's a difficult line to, uh, to tread, frankly. Yeah, could I just add the, the point about the Cold War? Because this is, again, alongside the lie that Harry and I are pushing for military intervention in every country in the world. Um, we've also been accused of promoting a new Cold War because of the emphasis in the pamphlet on, if you like, the state the military and economic projects associated with Russia and China. And I mean, just like to make two points on that. I mean, one is we put that emphasis because other parts of the left are not put in it. Right? Not because we don't think that there is, uh, there are American military and economic interests to be engaged with or critiqued or, or whatever. Um, but the second point is no, it's not about a new Cold War because the, the Cold War was a classic example of, of two camps, two, two, two blocks in which geopolitics uh, gravitated a, around. And this is very different, the nature of Chinese um, economic power um, is very different. So you've got a very complex um, mixture of um, the use by China of soft power and debt diplomacy uh, around the Belt and Road Initiative um, to draw states into economic dependency, which creates indebtedness, pol political indebtedness at the same time, mm. which as, for example, made... Um, Muslim countries completely unwilling to criticize China's treatment of their own Muslim population. But at the same time, the most ruthless totalitarian actions against the Uyghur minority and against the people of Hong Kong. And we can't let that go. I don't care how many people accuse me of uh, wanting to wage a new Cold War. Mm. You know, this is happening and evading it and refusing to, you know, to, to condemn it and to take action where possible is completely ir irresponsible. So there's two arguments, isn't there? There's, there's the argument for, for an intervention, um, whatever that would look like to prevent genocide or protect freedoms, uh, which is the sort of argument that you're making. I guess my question is, alongside that, if you have those capabilities and the argument that's often cited against having those capabilities is if you have those capabilities you start off with a, a good intention and you mentioned in your pamphlet uh, any foreign policy perspective rests on a triple axis of values interests and opportunity and obviously the first of those is is values so you start off with the right values and the capability and for example with new labor in 1997 and, and robin cook as, as foreign secretary and it leads to a positive intervention in in kosovo and Sierra leone 
but unfortunately when those capabilities are there it's open to abuse now the question is what's the safeguards that were in place over the in the 90s and, and early noughties so the new labor years the safeguards that were in, in, in place there weren't sufficient to prevent those capabilities from being abused so and when i say safeguards we the democratic process the pluralistic society that we live in and and nato as well and the international sort of condemnation of, of of direct intervention from some quarters that wasn't enough to prevent those capabilities from being abused so do you think there has to be alongside us having the the right values uh, does there have to be increased safeguards to prevent those capabilities being abused i don't think that one can establish well i mean you you can establish legal or, or political safeguards around things like votes in the house of commons or things of of, of that nature um but look ultimately this is this is about politics um i think there are two different issues of what you've you've raised there and that's a phrase that I put in in the latter part of of the the, the pamphlet about values, um, interests, and opportunities. Because I remember those Robin Cook years well, and you know I worked very closely with 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 Robin through the whole Labour coordinating committee years and and so on, um, and. He, you know, he did come on stock a bit around the, the the kind of ethical foreign policy, precisely because you can't run a foreign policy solely around values. In other words, if you, you know, you can't just say these are the things that we believe in and want to happen, and we're going to do them, because you have national interests to protect which includes and we have to face up to that an arms industry which protects the jobs of a very large number of skilled workers um, and then there is opportunity in terms of your capacity to you know to make alliances to make something an intervention feasible and again i'm not talking about military intervention and then there's the question of you have to have domestic consent. Mm -hmm. Now, and all those things are always in the mix when you, when you consider, so what you call abused, I mean, in, in a sense, there's the normal situation of assessing what you can do to pursue your values and recognizing some of the limits to that, and then there's the kind of really, you know, big issue stuff like Iraq, where, where as you say, um, we failed to stop something that should not have happened. Mm. And that is shameful. There, there are and, things but, the, but, but the thing is that um, that that has created 
a situation would, which makes it extremely unlikely to be repeated. Mm. Because that legacy, um, I mean, the, the, the people in the center and the soft left of the Labour Party who supported the Iraq war, that has hung round like a bad smell, let's be honest, yeah. um, around that. Um, and and I, you know, I'm more optimistic in a sense that the lessons learned from the failure and, and to ignore the fact that there was not domestic consent, mm. certainly not in the Labour Party, Mm. For for that, I'm more optimistic that was at the beginning. There wasn't the, the there same wasn't the mistakes. There was at the beginning. There wasn't there. I, I I in fact, it's Jack Straw's um, autobiography, and I think he quotes that. In fact, no, it might have been Ken Clark's autobiography. I'm I'm I, sh I shouldn't admit to a, a reading that, but I have. Um, that and he cites that there was a poll um, about the invasion of Iraq just before. Um, the you know the first day of of of, uh, of the war um, and it had the approval rating of around sort of seventy percent. So and that's why I pointed to pluralism failing in this instance as well. I think well, I, I think I recall a, a figure like that as well, uh, James. Actually, and I mean that that is a complicating factor. I mean I, there are there are some idiotic ways to try to address this like uh, Richard Bergen's suggestion in the leadership election sorry the deputy leadership election that we should have a mem vote of the membership um, if there's any military action that should be taken if you think about the sometimes the rapid response we have to take to emerging affairs yeah in order to you know sometimes wield military force in fact that's sometimes been put through without a parliamentary vote um, the idea that you would then I mean, poll the Labour membership is, 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 is madness. The reality is, of, of government, obviously things move quicker, but the, there are things that, I think you alluded to it, Harry, you know, things that we can do domestically to make sure our values are put first. And I think Paul was right to raise Hong Kong, and I think it's the same in, uh, the similar situation in Libya in terms of the Magnitsky sanctions that are, that are un criminally underused, um, in, in my view, and domestically as well apart from giving Labour Party members a vote on whether we go to war or not there, there was something floated in the 2017 manifesto called the War Powers Act do you think that could help or shape Labour's foreign policy in, in any way to prevent the more more you know hard-nosed interventions that might not have domestic support and might not uphold our values properly I can't remember what it said frankly it's, it, it's a it's a it's a basically a parliamentary vote on any sort of military invention abroad. I mean, in most cases, we've seen such a parliamentary vote um, in recent years. The vote that, that prevented, uh, that, that, that stopped, you know, airstrikes against Assad in, during the Miliband years, for instance. I mean, you know, uh, the government was defeated and no action was taken. Um, I mean... This does tend to go through parliamentary process, but I think, you know, obviously different majorities and, uh, you know, could, could be thought about with that. I, I, but I guess where we are talking about military action in our in our pamphlet and we're, we're totally not talking about land invasions of, of, of foreign countries. We're talking about limited you know, interventions that in recent years could have been practical in 
say the Syria conflict, the implementation of a no-fly zone that would have prevented um, the loss of a lot of human life and, and, and chemical weapons attacks, for instance. Sometimes that's not stuff that that's stuff that has to be done quite quickly. Um, and I, I'm not I'm not necessarily arguing here for a type of autocratic power on the part of prime ministers to willy-nilly um, engage militarily, but that would have to be something that would have to be considered in 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 the degree of parliamentary process that you were to um, implement for um, uh, to, to to you know in order to secure consent um, for for military action. But I mean I'm in favour of more democracy, uh, not less, in general. So you know I, I don't think the spirit of those kind of recommendations is bad at all. Okay, yeah, that's that's really great, guys. I think we'll we'll leave it there then. So thank you so much, both of you, for coming on. What are your plans then over the the coming months with this pamphlet? Or have you had other invita invitations to discuss it? Or I think we've been invited to a ritual burning at the stake. I can't remember which <laughs> week it was. You know, maybe it's, I'm hoping it's after Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> you've you've had some mixed response then to the pamphlet, have you? <laughs> Well, I, I think it was it was predictable that yeah. the usual suspects were going to go for us. Mm. But that, that's why I'm really yeah. uh, grateful for the opportunity to yeah. to have a conversational chance, mm. uh, you know, in, in in which you know we can explore it, you know, in a more informal sense. So I'm I'm hoping that you know we can get a decent audience for the, for for this podcast and then yeah. you know build on debating with other people who are in a sense willing to have a conversation rather ra rather than there's, there's no point I, you know i i once made the mistake of uh, accepting an invitation to speak at a militant summer school mm. um and uh, you know i survived on the other end but dialogue it wasn't and uh, I think that you know w where there's opportunity for dialogue I'm sure Harry and I will 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 take it the other point to make James is that I think open mm -hmm. labor plan to um, mm -hmm. have you know further further pamphlets in this uh, you know in, in 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 this area and you know the pamphlet that was released is not the be all and end all of sure. it's not it's not even open labor policy so mm -hmm. um, you know I, I think you know personally you know open labor shouldn't be taking necessarily the flack for things that we've written mm. it's good that open labor are uh, are you know exploring a, a dialogue around foreign policy that isn't necessarily hamstrung by some of the same preoccupations that characterize the corbyn years yes. and you know now is a is a period of of renewal and of reset and i think you know there's been a few angry responses to it but we're seeing the dying embers of of corbynism as a movement and you know there are there are degrees of difference within the left that uh, that you know is possible to explore without necessarily remaining beholden to um you know Corbyn can go off and start his peace and justice project or whatever and uh, um I'm, I'm sure it'll have a great success yeah our values in open labor are around having open discussion and debate around issues that's how we can have an have an, an informed policy base as as a party so that's what we're here to foster and encourage um and and, and you've formed part of that of course the um you've seen firsthand well no doubt over a number of years that um, there are 
certain people within the party that that don't wish to have a conversation that have their views they hold on to them and and, and if you disagree with them then um, you're just wrong and, and that's that's the way it is we're trying to change that culture hopefully this has has been a, a positive contribution to that but it certainly has no matter what anybody says about if, if they disagree with you or or whether they agree with you nobody can say that it's not been very interesting and very informative and and that's what again what we try and promote so thank you both so much for coming on to the podcast it, it's been great to talk to both of you thanks great merry christmas thanks a lot Bye. yeah merry christmas we forget yeah. about that yeah. <laughs>